glad to be alive? Wow, that's pathetic, but I'm going to cut you a break because you didn't know it was coming. Several months ago, as a staff, we sat and began to discuss the sermon series for this summer so that we might have some chance to plan and ultimately decided, as you already have observed, to spend some time in the Psalms. Psalm 91 is one of my favorites, and in that discussion, I had suggested that, and then Annie goes, hey, why don't you teach on that? I'm like, yeah, I'm ready to teach on Psalm 91. The challenge is there's so much in this, we could probably spend six to eight weeks and not exhaust the living word of God in just this one chapter. So semi bit of disclosure here, it is not my intent to wring out every truth in this because I don't believe that's possible in this setting, but hopefully to suggest some insights and then maybe stir you on an ongoing basis to begin to unpack this word of God for you. And what would happen if you spent the next 30 days reading this psalm once a day? My experience would be you would find things on day 27 that you had not noticed on day 17 because the Word of God is living and active. So let's read this morning, or let's means me, Psalm 91, and then we'll unpack this a little bit. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you <clears throat> excuse me, with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked, if you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord, who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So let's begin with verse 1 as we unpack this a little bit. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. So the key word in this particular verse is this idea of dwell. Uh, our son Nathan, who's the drummer this morning, he's got a cool new Hawaiian shirt on he's pretty excited about. But in the last six months, he's been looking for houses. What's the old adage in real estate? Location, location, location. So multiple times in this journey, he would send Carol and I a picture or a text or a listing and go, hey, this looks awesome. And we've all probably had that experience. If it looks too good to be true, it's too good to be true. Or you get a great looking house that's four feet from the railroad tracks. And that's awesome until the trains are going by. 
Well, location, location, location to the psalmist is this idea, this indication that dwelling in the shelter of the Most High will bring rest in the shadow that the Most High cast. Because to be in the shadow of the Most High, where must we be? Near Him. So dwelling is a purposeful, intentional choice to be near to God, to continue to draw near to Him. It's not a casual acquaintance. We all have those casual acquaintances. We run into them at the store, at the gas station. Hey, how you doing? Great. You too. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Not that that's a bad thing, but those folks that are dear to us, we end up standing at those places and, whoa, we got to go because there's a depth to that relationship. So an intimate friendship, relationship with God is the only place that we can hope to know true rest and refreshment. Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, take my yoke, learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. Anybody want to sign up for rest for their souls? Because in this culture, we're just weary. One more stress, one more trauma or drama. And so why is it important that we dwell in the shelter of the Most High? Because it's the only place we can know peace, no matter what the world suggests. So the psalmist begins with this image of dwelling. Where we dwell indicates how safe we will be. Verse 2 The psalmist, inspired by the Spirit of God, says, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Would you agree that our culture often says Jesus was a wise prophet and a good teacher? We've probably all heard that in some fashion or another. Or maybe we've even heard Jesus quoted It is true that he is a wise teacher and a prophet, but that falls so short of what the scripture actually says about him. And the psalmist writes these words, my refuge, my fortress, my God. There's a pursuit, there's an investment, there's a passion, there's an alignment with the God of gods. He's the only one with a capital G on God. There's lots of little g gods, It could be our careers or our culture or our bank accounts or our kids or any of those things, but God is the only one with a capital G, and this word here, my refuge, my fortress. You don't have to answer this out loud because it might be a little awkward and weird, but if we were all 100% transparent is we would say our refuge sometimes is way too small. It's just, I want to find refuge in binge-watching Netflix, and no shame or guilt, but you can watch all the Netflix you want. It's not going to bring refuge. It's a distraction, And, and the risk is it's numbing, and then we feel sort of safe, but it's a facade. Would you agree with this statement? The world is not improving. It's continuing to go downhill, and for the last couple of years, I've just purposed to not watch the news Because if I want to see the weather, I can look at it on an app. Now, if you love the news, hey, God bless you. I'm not your Holy Spirit. But it's just tragedy upon tragedy, and it's continuing to accelerate towards darkness. And I don't know if we're living in the end times. That'd be super cool if, like, next Thursday, Jesus would come back. Or let's not wait till next Thursday, like right now. Now, our 24-year-old daughter who is not in this service says, Dad, I get it. It would be cool for Jesus to come back, but could he wait till I get married and have kids? I mean, it's an honest desire of her heart. 
But to find refuge in God as our fortress makes all of those things we think are important much less significant. And the world will never provide for us a significant, sustainable refuge. So key words so far are dwell and refuge. And next, we're going to come to this idea for followers of Christ of no fear. So these are verses 3 through 10. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near to you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked if you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. So our phrase or key word here is no fear. Now, if you're grammatically focused, no fear isn't a word, but bear with me there. Okay? If we take these words as the Spirit of God inspired them through the pen of the psalmist, then in Christ, we have nothing to fear. That's a powerful observation. Notice the comprehensiveness of this list. Fowler snare, deadly pestilence, terror of night, arrow that flies by day, pestilence that stalks in the darkness, plague that destroys at midday, thousands falling around you. Whoa, that's some heavy stuff, isn't it? I was just with my Sunday school class back there. They're unpacking these words right now. And we were talking about the fowler's snare. Now, I'm not Bear grills. I'm not going to go live in the woods for months alone. I, I did get to be in the woods last week with the Trail Life boys in Leadville. And let me tell you, that was awesome. We got to hang out. Every morning I wore a coat because it was in the mid-40s. And if you're hating, you need to deal with that with God right now. But it was awesome. But if I was trying to live in the woods, I would probably want to get good at snaring things. And what little bit I know about that, if you're going to do a snare that's successful, it's generally hidden. It's subtle. So when the psalmist writes about the fowler snare, this isn't the enemy coming swinging through camp with an axe. It's a hidden way to trip us up. So there are so many things that will trip us up, but if we're in Christ, we're abiding and dwelling in him, we don't have anything to fear from those snares. Deadly pestilence. Might the last 20-some months illustrate this fairly well? Early on in that, a time hop came up the other day on my book of the face, which can be a big time sucker but has maybe marginal value. But in the early stages of that, I got to preach a sermon sitting down here by the pond in my pop-up deer blind. That was kind of fun. Actually, I would have preferred more doing that right here. But deadly pestilence, we didn't know what we're dealing with. And I'm not sure we still know 100% what we're dealing with. But in Christ, dwelling in God's presence, we don't have anything to fear. Terror of night. Now, surely none of us deal with that. Get ready, end of the evening, you go to bed, and then what does your brain do? Or what does the enemy do? Hey, worry about this, worry about this, worry about this, worry about this. And then it's three in the morning and you're just mad, right? The psalmist spoke about that. The arrow that flies by day. These are probably more obvious, but it can be that attack from someone you thought you could trust. 
or you thought was on your team. Plague that destroys at midday again, and then thousands falling around you. If we were to be watching the news this morning, and I'm not advocating for that, we would likely see some kind of tragedy at some place in the world where thousands have died. How tragic might it be that we've kind of grown numb to that? But as Christians, we don't need to fear that. Hear hear these words again. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. Our oldest son and his family are in Montana and they are living the homesteading life, which I do not pretend to understand. Six people, a Great Dane, a Chihuahua, and a cat living in a camper on 20 acres north of Billings, Montana. But they have somewhere between 60 and 100 ducks, chickens, and geese, which means they eat a lot of eggs. We'll be there next month. I will probably have lots of eggs. But what I've learned from what they have taught us is that chickens, ducks, and geese are fiercely protective of their young. When the scripture says God will cover us with his feathers and we will find refuge under them, that is a reminder that he is fighting to protect us. Isn't that good news? And God never, ever goes off duty. He never turns away. He's never distracted. So follower of Christ, there's nothing to fear. So, so far, we've talked about dwell, refuge, no fear, and next brings us as Christ followers to this idea of being protected Verses 11 through 13. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. So the key word here is protected. This is the exact same passage Satan used to tempt Jesus. Why is it important for us to notice that? Because Satan took the truth of God's word and he took it out of context and he tried to make it mean something it was never intended to mean. And I would suggest in this Pinterest soundbite culture, we see that kind of thing happening all the time. If scripture gets taken out of context, it gets misused, and then it creates some very distorted views. So what did Jesus do when he was tempted with this? Is he just turned right back to scripture? What might we then do as followers of Christ is go back to scripture, understand it in context, and then know that God's word is always true. So Satan's temptation was, hey, why don't you call on those angelic guards to come fight for you? And God's word does in fact tell us that angels are ministering spirits to us. The danger of that is we've dumbed that down to what I would suggest is a Hallmark theology. I have nothing against Hallmark. I'm not hating on Hallmark. But if we went to the Hallmark store, we could probably find little lapel pins or things you hang on their mirror that are guardian angels. That's sort of pathetic, folks. Because every time in the scriptures, angels showed up, what was the universal response? They were terrified. I don't want a little cherub, you know, that's got pudgy cheeks on my lapel pin. I want the nine-foot giant swinging a sword against the enemy. That's a much better image, isn't it? 
And so when the scripture tells us he will command his angels to guard you, here's where we struggle, or here's where I struggle. You may have this figured out. Is you go, okay, super cool, but what about this terrible thing that happened? Or what about this tragedy? Or what about this thing I don't understand? Where, where are the guardian angels? Might it be important for us to pause and recognize, gang, there is a war going on we cannot see. And the worst that the world and the enemy can do to us is kill this body. Big deal. I'm not suicidal, don't worry. I'm not in a rush to get to the end of the journey. But when this body gets folded up, the Apostle Paul referred to it as a tent. And, you know, when you're in the mountains, you get home, you clean up your tent, you put it away. Hopefully it's dry. Because if you put away a wet tent, it's not pretty the next time you get it out. But I did that yesterday, dried it all out, put it away until the next time I use it. Well, when this earthly tent gets folded up, whether it's tragically or otherwise, the part of me that is eternal, my soul, gets a brand new body. One author suggests is God takes what's us and downloads it into a new body. And the download speed in heaven is stellar, okay? You don't have to worry about the internet service there. So for us to be protected acknowledges that the physical is not permanent. The soul is permanent. And when we are in Christ, we are able to see our enemy, the devil, because it says you will tread on the lion and the cobra. First Peter says your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The scripture tells us that we will see the enemy defeated. Isn't that good news? Now, sometimes we get to see that daily. This last week, hanging out with all these little guys in Colorado, I got to teach on the armor of God. So the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. Well, when you're hanging out with a group of people all week long, that becomes tangible because they get to picking at each other, like all of us would do when you spend a week together. Hey, are, are you speaking truth into one another's lives? Are you functioning with a helmet of salvation that defines your thoughts and your beliefs? We will see the enemy defeated and we are promised that God protects us. He does not tell us we will see every part of that. What if I could offer you a pair of lenses that would see spiritual warfare? These aren't, but wouldn't that be kind of cool or a little bit scary? But what we would know is God is warring for us and often his angels are involved in that and we don't need to see it because it's God's activity. I have to take these off because my eye doctor keeps trying to get me bifocals and I'm not doing it. She does that same thing when I say no. Keywords, dwell, refuge, no fear, protected, and lastly, secure. Verses 14 through 16. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him, I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. True or false, God's love for us is unconditional. It's true, right? However, our confidence in these promises that we've been exploring this morning is conditioned on our response to God. The psalmist writes, because he loves me, says the Lord. 
And when we love God, which isn't just we love him like we love pizza or we love ice cream, it's that unconditional, God, I love you, I choose you, I choose your values and your principles to order my life around. We're told there's rescue and protection and answer and God's presence and deliverance and honor and satisfaction in eternal life where our salvation will be made whole. How many things are not going to be said in heaven? Oops, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? My bad. Those will disappear out of our vocabulary because we will be made whole and that is the only place we can truly be satisfied. To be secure in God means whatever's swirling around us doesn't hold that much power over us. Now, I, I'm having fun mentioning the mountains because I love the mountains. If I could figure out a way to live in Colorado and work here, I would so do that. So somebody please invent a teleporter and I'll just teleport to Leadville almost every evening or somewhere nice like that. But the risk is, is I go, well, that would satisfy me. It won't because it's anchored in the here and now and our souls are never going to be satisfied outside of Christ. So we can and, and can know and are absolutely secure in Christ, independent of our feelings and our circumstances. Would you agree that our culture has become a feeling culture? I feel like these are glasses. That's ridiculous. But that's the way our culture speaks. And too often that has snuck into our theology that we feel or don't feel Jesus and we think he's gone somewhere. He hasn't gone anywhere. He promises, and his promises are secure, I will never leave you or forsake you. Isn't that good news? Now, if we were shouting church, there'd be an amen there. I'm not suggesting you need to, but maybe we ought to shout a little bit that, hey, we're secure in Christ and in all of his promises. So dwell, refuge, no fear, protected, secure. Let me bottom line this a little bit. This is just how my brain works. Is bottom line, it's imperative that we pursue God as our dwelling place and refuge because if we don't, we're just adrift and we're subject or hostage to our feelings or our circumstances and the next crazy thing that comes on the news is going to spin us out of control. Is anybody tired of living that way? I think we ought to be tired. So knowing of God or about him are no substitute for confessing Christ as Savior and Lord, repenting of our sins, being obedient in baptism, and then seeking to walk with him moment by moment by moment. And then we're told to share his love with those that we come in contact with. Now, I want to back into this just for a moment, gang, because one of the things that I've learned over the years is confessing Christ, repenting of our sins, that's not always that tough for folks. Hey, God, I'm sorry. I ask you to forgive me. But this baptism thing, a little bit of a soapbox for me, is why is that such a sticking place? Often because of our pride, because of fear, because of anxiety. Because if the scripture said, repent, confess, and jump on pogo sticks, shouldn't we then be jumping on pogo sticks? And that's not in the Bible. Don't worry. It's not a weird translation. But this baptismal is heated 24-7 so that if someone says, I, I'm at the point or I want to be baptized, then we can do that at any point in the day or night. 
The, the invitation never quits. And in a few moments, the decision point doors are going to open. And there are some folks there that would love to pray with you and encourage you and help you understand what the scripture says. But it's a fair statement. There are some in this room that need to take that leap of faith in spite of the fear and anxiety and say, I, I want to be obedient to God in that. Now, I, I want to be gentle but also firm here and transparent. I don't love having a decision point because I think there's a risk that if we can't be bold enough, because I grew up in church, like born on Saturday and church on Sunday, and if it's too scary for us to walk in front of a group of people that love us and confess our faith, huh. Now, I know why we do decision points, because there's a lot going on, and we don't want people to just go, I got to get baptized, because if you're just getting wet, you're just getting wet. But if it's an outflow of what Christ is doing in our hearts, it's a symbol of death, burial, and resurrection. You can't baptize yourself. Now, I did find on YouTube there's a self-baptism video. Not a fan. But to make that decision and then walk for God enables us to do all these things we've heard, to find him to be our refuge, to dwell in him. And then our last bottom line statement is we can only know true peace when we're secure in Jesus and we trust him with our here and now and our eternity. Having just traveled a little bit, it reminded me that reservations are pretty important. Ever had that experience if you roll up to wherever you thought you had reservations and you give them your name and they go, uh, sorry, your name's not in there. That's a real test of our faith, by the way, whether we're gentle and kind in those moments. Does Jesus go to the reservation desk with us? I hope so. But when the scripture says we will be satisfied, God says, I will satisfy him. There is nothing more satisfying than knowing when I take my last breath Maybe tomorrow, hopefully at 100, unless Jesus has come back. It's my goal. I have a different goal. Is that Jesus goes, hey, come on in. I'm so excited that you're here. And then we'll know satisfaction and peace in a full fashion. This side of heaven, we can only know what humans can know. So I don't know where you're at. Maybe you need to walk to one of those decision points and go, hey, I'm not sure. I'm not secure. Maybe you're super secure and you go, yeah, get them. Just be praying and then be available to be used by God wherever he plants your feet. Whatever your decision is, I invite you to make it as we stand and sing this morning.